Our first scripture reading is from the book of Jeremiah. As we preach through the book of Galatians, we like to read a portion of scripture from the opposite testament. So we'll be reading Jeremiah chapter 6. Heather will read for us. Heather, if you would. Jeremiah 6, 16 to 21. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear o, hear, o earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks against which they shall stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend shall perish. As mentioned, we're in a sermon series in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is a book written by the Apostle Paul to not just one church, but a region of churches, the region of Galatia. And he writes this letter as, as, as a corrective instrument. He once taught them the truths of the gospel, but these people have now wandered and believed other things as a result of other teachers creeping in. And though that might not be the case for us today, the book of Galatians is still relevant to the life of the church. And before we spend some time reflecting on our passage this morning, we'll have Evelyn come and read for us. Evelyn, if you would. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me as not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my elders, my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Would you pray with me one more time? Christian Father, we trust that you are a God who speaks and has spoken. And I pray that you would use me and use your word to burrow deep the truth of the gospel into our hearts. Even now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
While I was an undergrad, I had the privilege of being a teaching assistant for a few years. Throughout that time, I, I taught portions of classes, I graded work, and I proctored exams. I loved it, I loved it. I really fell in love with teaching. But one of the things I always had to look out for, especially with assignments and with exams, was plagiarism and cheating. We had a process if we suspected somebody of plagiarism or cheating, and it was quite interesting. If a student was caught cheating during an exam, uh, we would actually be quiet. We'd simply just note it down and then go and review that student's exam after the fact. The reason being, you don't want to cause a commotion and cause distraction for those of the students that are writing. But for, for plagiarism, it was actually far more extensive. Sure, we had softwares that would help notify us whether some of the material was original or whether how much of it was quoted. But even if we had caught them and suspected them of plagiarism, it actually would lead to an open case with the school's academic integrity office. The office operated like a courtroom where students would come and present their case if they were suspected of plagiarism. In that, they would share where they got the information from, how they used it, and why they think they should be let off the hook. Here in our passage this morning, we have Paul sharing his own case, not to an integrity office, but to the Church of Galatia and as, a, as an extension to us. But Paul's not a student with an assignment that's being questioned of his sourcing. He's a teacher being questioned about his teaching curriculum and even his license to teach. And within these verses, we'll see where, where Paul gets his gospel from and how he actually came to him and how it changed his life. Paul here is arguing for the authenticity and authority of the gospel. But why is he doing this? Because as mentioned last week, in the verses above, the church of Galatia is struggling with these troublemakers. They're leading people away from the true gospel. Maybe you don't have troublemakers in your life that are leading you astray. But maybe your heart troubles you. Maybe you've questioned, where is the gospel from? Why do I believe it? And, and, and what, what has it done? And if that is you today, God has something for you this morning. Through Paul's testimony here, we see three arguments that Paul makes for the authenticity and authority of the gospel. Within these verses, we will see that the gospel comes from God. Secondly, that the gospel is revealed by God. And then thirdly, the gospel transforms for the glory of God. So firstly this, the gospel comes from God. Paul has just finished saying that there is only one gospel and the church of Galatia should not deviate from it and neither should we. Why? Because this gospel is not subject to change. It has one author and that author is not Paul. It's not the troublemakers. It's not angels. It's not apostles. It's God. It's Jesus. The gospel comes from God. Paul opens in verse 11 saying that the gospel that he's preaching is not from man. It's not man's gospel. And in the next verse, he goes on to say that he did not receive it from man, that he was not taught it by man. Instead, he received it by, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is arguing here where his gospel has come from. If you've read any Paul before, 
you know that he makes these elaborate layered arguments. And from verses 11 to 24, we'll see that Paul weaves this thread of the source of the gospel and that the source of the gospel is Jesus Christ. He positively states it here that he's received this gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then subsequently, he denies any other possible source. In verses 13 to 14, he reminds his readers of his old life before Christ. It is in the midst of his Jewish zeal that he destroyed the church. And it is in the midst of that persecution that the gospel came to Paul through Jesus Christ. And then after Paul was converted and commissioned, Paul tells us that he did not consult with anybody. If you look at the end of verse 16, he says that. He didn't go up to meet the other apostles in Jerusalem, but instead he, what it, instead he goes into Arabia, into some, what some believe is a self-imposed exile for three years. What Paul wants to make clear, absolutely clear to us, is that the gospel comes from God, that the gospel comes from Jesus. He continues this thread of argument by stating that only after those three years did he go up to Jerusalem, and then he visited Cephas, which is the apostle Peter. And it it was a short 15-day visit. There was no other apostles there but the brother of Jesus, It would be understood that 15 days was not long enough to be taught in rabbinic tradition, but it was enough time for people to get to know one another. It's uncertain why the other apostles were not there and why only James was and only Peter was, but it is speculative that they were probably still scared of Paul or they just were dispersed and they had gone other places. But what Paul's making clear here, regardless of of who he spoke to, is that he didn't get this gospel from Peter. He didn't get this this gospel from other apostles. He earnestly wants the church to know and for us to know that the gospel comes from Jesus Christ. He goes so far to even take an oath. You read this in, in in, in the scriptures here. Before God, before the Lord, I do not lie. He takes this so seriously that he takes this oath and he finally concludes his argument by telling us that he ends his time in a region where people did not know him. They've only heard of him. Paul is stating that the gospel comes from Jesus. It didn't come from himself. It didn't come from the apostles. It didn't come from the other region. It came from Jesus Christ himself. He tells us that the gospel that we believe has a divine origin. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is likely, this this revelation of Jesus Christ is likely Paul mentioning his conversion on the Damascus road where he encountered the risen Christ. The word revelation denotes the idea of something being unveiled. It's like the curtain is being drawn back. It's as if you see uh, the showroom car and they lift the, the sheet off of it, the blanket off it, and they see something as it is. Or maybe more accurately, it's like having a set of glasses that allows you to see a realm that truly does exist, but you can't see it. 
It's the idea of seeing something as it truly is. The phrase, a revelation to Jesus Christ, is written in the Greek genitive, which means that it can be that Jesus was either the substance of the revelation, or he was the one who the revelation came through. And in many ways, I think it's both. I think that Jesus is the revelation, but he's also the one that it came through, making it that it came from Jesus. The gospel comes from God. It comes from Jesus. In many ways, we can think of it how we might receive our electricity. We may receive it through an outlet, but that outlet is truly not the source of the electricity. The outlet is actually connected to a power grid that is then connected to a hydro plant or renewable energy source, and that is where we gain access. And though we access our electricity through this outlet, it truly is not the source. Similarly, Paul would have spoke the gospel, he wrote the gospel, but he was not the source. The source was Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just the source of the gospel, but he's also the substance of the gospel. The good news that the Son of God, the third person of the Trinity, came to earth, incarnate deity, lived a perfect life that we could not live, and died the death for our sins, the penalty for every lustful thought, and every envious word, every covetous desire. Jesus Christ died for our sins so that we would be forgiven. But he did not stay dead. Instead, he rose on the third day as our resurrected king, conquering over sin, death, and the devil, and rules at the right hand of the, God, of the Father right now. And his resurrection points to our hope, a resurrected life where there is no sin, there is no disease, there is no death, there are no tears. Instead, there is eternal life and life eternal. But this good news is only good news for those who have confessed their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Otherwise, it's very bad news. Your sins are not forgiven. The punishment for your sins still stand against you, and you'll be judged. The Bible tells us of a place called hell, a place of eternal torment, a place of death place apart from God. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is the reality of where you will stand before God. But I implore you, I encourage you, I ask you that you would put your faith in Jesus Christ today, that you would turn from your sins, that you would trust in him, that you turn from your unbelief and believe in Jesus Christ, knowing that he is the source of the gospel, but also the substance of the gospel, knowing that this gospel is not mine, it's not Paul's, it's God's. Hear God today, believe in him, that the gospel comes from God, it comes from Jesus. He's like this electricity that actuates and brings life to the gospel, which leads us to our second point. The gospel not only comes from God, but it is revealed by God. It's revealed by God. You're probably wondering what's different about this point than the last point. The last point dealt with the idea that the gospel, or that the source of the gospel was Jesus Christ. This point deals more particularly 
with how we come to believe that gospel. It is that God reveals it. God not only gave Paul the gospel, but he also caused for Paul to believe the gospel. Verse 15 makes this abundantly clear to us, that the triune God is active in bringing us to faith in Christ. God reveal, not, God not only, God reveals the gospel to us, not just intellectually, but experientially. Maybe some of you have wondered why so many people that you may know have heard the gospel, but, not have, but have not believed. This point gives clarity to that. And in many ways, it might cause more questions. It might be uncomfortable to hear of the doctrines that are spoken about in this point. But I encourage you to hear what the scriptures have to say. And if you have questions, find myself, find one of the elders, or write an email that we can discuss the truths of how we are saved. Here, Paul gives us what theologians call the order of salvation. Paul doesn't give us the complete order, but he provides at least the four, first four actions of God and salvation. When I came to planning my sermon this week, I thought I was going to maybe explain one theological term, uh, but this point has four. And so please bear with me. You can walk away that you learned Maybe even five, if you count order of salvation, order salutis, five different terms. So bear with me, but Lord willing, this might not be extensive, but Lord willing, it is clear. Paul begins, verse 15, speaking of election. Election. He says, But he who had set me apart before I was born, it is possible that the words here are not speaking to election. Paul was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees believed that they were set apart by keeping the law. It's this idea that they were made holy by doing these particular actions. But instead, Paul says that he was set apart, not by his actions, but by grace. Not because of anything he did, because of the unmerited favor of God. But I don't think it's one of these either-or scenarios. I think in many ways it's a both-and. I think that Paul is addressing the false understanding of the Pharisees of how they are to be holy before God. But I think he's also addressing God's divine choosing for the individuals to be saved. Our experience with the word election can make it difficult as we think of God's election. When we think of election, we think of somebody's platform, what they've done, and how they can be of service. And that is the reason that we should be chosen. But election to God is not merited by what we do, what we say. Instead, it is God working by his sovereign will and by grace. How the divine choosing of God practically plays out in scripture is not clear in many ways. It's a mystery. But what the Bible does tell us, particularly in the book of Ephesians, is that we are predestined or we're elected in love. This divine choosing is God at work. And what is clear is that we're all unworthy, regardless of who we are, 
If we've been chosen by God to believe in Jesus Christ, it is not because of what we could do or what we, what we would do. It's God's grace. We're all unworthy. I know this is a hard truth to understand, and that's okay. It can be challenging, and in many ways, this verse is not the best verse on election, though it does tip its hat to it. But may we be comforted that God elects somebody even like Paul, somebody that used to kill Christians, someone that was so hateful to Christ. And so if there's a loved one or a friend that is so far off that you think is so far off, they're not so far off to God. God can save them. We don't know who is elect and who is chosen by God. And so we share and preach the gospel that they would respond to God's call. Which leads us to the second theological term or the second action of God in the order of salvation, which is effectual call. Paul mentions here effectual call. He says, before I was born, and he and who called me by his grace, who called me by his grace, This idea of effectual call can either be the external call of the gospel where we all hear, but also the internal call of the gospel where the Holy Spirit calls the believer to believe in him. It is the Holy Spirit's work of convincing and clarifying who Jesus is. And it's not something that we can do. It's not some work that we can get done. It is just by grace that God does this by presenting us the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of Jesus Christ so that we would believe, which leads us to God's third act, which is regeneration. Regeneration. God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. It's the son revealed. It is the work of God that would bring us to a place of truly seeing Jesus for who he is. Regeneration is the idea that we were once dead in our sins, incapable of seeing God, incapable of obeying God, incapable of loving God as we ought. And is God giving us a new heart so that we would truly be converted. Regeneration is the act of God making us alive so that we would respond to him in repentance and faith. And this is commonly known to us as conversion. This fourth act of God, conversion, is not explicit in our text. But Paul does mention his repentance and faith in God's action of saving him by mentioning his preaching to the Gentiles. This captures Paul's repentance because he turns from persecuting the faith to now preaching it. It speaks to his obedience as he obeys God's call that he would be commissioned to preach the gospel to Gentiles. God in his grace is calling each of us to believe in him. And may the spirit give life that we would truly see Jesus as he is. That we may be, com be converted and commissioned today. 
And though the heavens have not ripped open and we haven't been told to go and preach the gospel to a particular people group, God, through his word, has told us to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And if you are a believer in this room, remember your calling. Remember your commission, that he has not just left you to your own devices, that you just enjoy God. No, yes, you enjoy God, but he's also sent you into the world to make disciples. Paul makes clear that the gospel is from God. It's revealed by God through those four great actions of God. But Paul concludes his argument for the authenticity of the gospel, uh, the authority and th- authenticity of the gospel, by stating that the gospel transforms for the glory of God. The gospel transforms for the glory of God. The last thread in Paul's argument is that the gospel he preached and experienced led to the glory of God, not to the glory of man. Though we spoke about how Paul was converted, we did not address Paul's pre or post conversion. And in many ways, this point addresses what the gospel does. It changes lives. Paul mentions twice his persecution of the church. In verses 13 to 14, he mentions that he violently persecuted the church of God, trying to destroy it, which is his pre-conversion story. He ends this section of the letter mentioning his post-conversion story, that he preached the faith that he once sought to destroy. Paul notes that his transformation led to people glorifying God and not him. As we examine the gospel that, he, that was preached this morning, what we will see is that it's all about God. It's God's message. It's God's work of salvation in us. And it all points to God's glory. If we were to examine any other belief system or any other religion, what you'd quickly realize is that it glorifies man's efforts. Broadly speaking, they all teach that you can now somehow do something or get something and then get right with God. You can either say the right things or pray the right prayers or not do specific things. And by doing so, you'll get God. And not only do you apparently get God, but you get all the credit. You get all the glory. Paul concludes his argument pointing to the fact that his gospel did not make much of himself, did not make anything of him, but made much of God. Verse 24 tells us that they glorified God because of me. Not that they glorified me because of God. Paul was a persecutor of the faith, the most unlikely person to be converted. He hated Christians. He was killing Christians, but the gospel transformed him. It was God's immense grace and mercy that changed him. Paul did not deserve that. He deserved death. But God didn't kill him. He didn't cancel him. Instead, he forgave him. He redeemed him. When you hear the story of Paul, we can be tempted to wonder, does God still do this today? Does God still take the most unlikely sinner and save them? 
The answer is yes, he does. There's examples throughout history of God saving the most unlikely. Think of C.S. Lewis, a staunch atheist that then became preacher, teacher, and author of many Christian books, or of C.T. Studd, a famous cricketer that was once a missionary and then tur- that was once a cricketer and then turned missionary. The list goes on and on. There are even contemporary examples of this. But maybe the unlikely individual isn't some celebrity to you. It's not some politician. Maybe you're wondering about your brother or your sister or your aunt or your uncle or a son or a daughter, a mother or father, a friend or neighbor. Will they ever turn to Christ? Maybe the most unlikely individual is yourself. I know I was the most unlikely convert for many of my friends and for many of my family. And even early on in my walk with the Lord, when I told them that I think I should be a pastor, I wanted to be a pastor, many were shocked, even laughed. I grew up in a Christian home, but I denied the faith. I argued against it. I provided every reason for why Christianity was untrue. My life was marked by foolishness, immorality, drunkenness. And many thought I would not change. Neither did I. But God, through the gospel, changed my life. One day, I was forced to go to church by my sister. I was forced, but I went. And as I sat in the church, the truth of who Jesus was, that he was Lord, that he was Savior, the reality of my sin, my need for a Savior was so evident to me. And God led me to repentance. God changed my heart. All of those four things in the order of salvation, he was doing that. He was doing that. I didn't understand. My life was never the same since. And as I often think about my life, I just think, praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Because I never thought I would be a Christian, let alone a pastor in training. It's the Lord. It was the Lord at work. Maybe your testimony is not as eventful, but it still brings our God much glory. May we be a people that glorify God because of the faith that we see in each other. That each of us, God has given us a new heart, that he's changed and transformed. Even if that transformation has looked and felt more gradual, It is to the praise and glory of our God that you know him. When Paul was introduced in the scriptures in Acts chapter 7, where we read of the stoning of Stephen, in that narrative, Stephen prays that those who are persecuting him would be forgiven. God answered that prayer just two chapters later in the book of Acts, where we read of the conversion of Paul. 
Similarly, my sister and my mother prayed for me. And God answered that prayer. And I know many of you are praying for a loved one, praying for your spouse, praying for your coworkers. And may we be a people that are truly trusting God and asking him to glorify himself by, tra- by transforming lives. When we think of that person's transformation, we can be pushed to think of all of its benefits that come to them in Christ. When you think of Paul, it might be that persecution stopped because Paul became a Christian. But maybe in the case of your spouse or, or parent or sibling, you can think that the fighting will stop, that you'll have peace, that they'll have joy, and much, much more. But what we see here, that whether it's Paul or some other unlikely individual, their transformation was not for themselves, it was not for our benefit, it's for God's. Though those things may be true and they may come, it's God. It's for God. Not that God needs anything from us, but it's for his glory. It points to what God has done. God may change the most unlikely person in this room this morning. And I pray that he does. That our God would receive all the glory that is due to his name. That he would change each of us. He change our city, that he change our country because he is a God that is worthy to be praised from every tribe, tongue, and nation. As we close, be reminded of the authenticity and authority of the gospel. It is found in the fact that the gospel comes from God. It is revealed by God that it, that it transforms for the glory of God. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths, that you are a God who divinely has instructed us in the good news. I pray that it would burrow deep into our hearts, that you'd be changing lives for the sake of your glory and the magnitude of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name.